Hello, hello. Welcome back. It's been a while since I put out an episode, so I just want to refresh. Um, This series best operates as a story. So if you're new here and you want to check this out, it's best to start at the beginning and enjoy it as it unfolds. Otherwise, if you're just kind of popping in to see what this is all about, at this point in the story, I am uh, in Colorado Springs, which is a town I lived in when I was 12 to 16 years old, and I am now revisiting that place to explore some memories, uh, meet some new people, practice new skills, and I actually reconnected with my English teacher from 8th grade, 20 years after she taught me, and the previous episode to this one is where I interview her in a downtown hotel lobby. Well worth at least checking that one out if this is all new to you so you get a feel for where I'm at, what I'm trying to do, and how that's being received as I travel. With that said, the basics are... In November of 2021, I basically sold everything that I owned, crossed the border into the United States, and started traveling in a van in Montana, Wyoming, and now in Colorado Springs, looking for a new sense of purpose, a way that I can contribute to the world, and starting first by what can I learn. So what can I learn and how can I contribute became the two guiding questions that I asked. And I tried to infuse gratitude, curiosity, and acceptance into every day that I um, was on the road. And of course, I had no real plan, but I knew that I wanted to revisit my past before really digging into who I am today, because who we tell ourselves that we used to be often unconsciously informs who we think we are today. So by revisiting the stories and literally going to the locations that made a difference to me in my childhood, it allowed me to see the past with a fresh perspective that informed me of what I am actually capable of in this moment and going forward. So that's kind of where we're at in the story right now. And I'm really happy to have you here. Um, I'd love to hear what this means for you and how you take any of the reflections here and apply them to your own life or what resonates or what feels alarming or what you really dislike too. There's lots of room for that. So without anything else, let's jump into it. This is Episode 17, Cravings and Connections. I'm not sure what woke me up exactly. The house was silent, as most houses are two hours after midnight. But something in between my ears was sounding an alarm that gently nudged my mind from its dreaming state of alpha waves washing up upon the sandy shores of serenity. I awoke, though, to find myself drowning in twitchy, dysregulated consciousness, and I needed to feel okay. With the slow and muted movements that only a five-year-old can muster, I climbed down the metal rungs from the top bunk, careful not to disturb my sister who slept below. My ears were perked for any sounds from the next room, but my mom wore hearing aids during the day, which gave her kind of a luxury at night of not being easily disturbed, not even by my snoring dad. It's almost jarring to think back on memories of both my parents sharing a bedroom. What an intimate thing it is, really, to sleep in the same room as someone. Why is that? Is it the vulnerability required to surrender our consciousness amidst company? Is it some subconscious whisper of a belief we have that dreaming beside someone connects us in other intangible ways? Who was it in our lives that laid beside us when we had our best dreams? I think I have the best dreams when I'm alone. Anyways, the five-year-old version of myself was certain that I was the only conscious person in the house late that night. 
I turn the bedroom door handle slowly enough to hear the spring inside of it strain, crack the door open just wide enough on its squeaky hinges to fit through, and traced my way down the steps with careful navigation to avoid my bare feet landing on the creaky spot in the middle of that sixth stair. The carpet muffled the rest of my steps until the cool kitchen floor tapped against my toes. It was the top shelf in the corner cupboard where my parents kept the box of fruit by the foot, probably the only junk food in the house. I placed my palms on the counter and pulled up my scrawny frame until I was on my knees beside the stovetop. From there, I made quick work of reaching into the box, grabbing what I came for, opening the plastic wrapper as slowly as possible. The fragrant faux strawberry aroma seemed to fill the kitchen as I unrolled the fruitless fruit leather and stripped away the long piece of bleached white paper. My mouth watered as I clumped the entire three feet into a tightly packed ball, quickly climbed the silent edges of the staircase, closed the door, and scrambled up the ladder. I pulled the sheets over me like a baseball player stealing home base and celebrated by stuffing the entire ball into my mouth. Packing it into my left cheek, I felt the instant rush of pleasure, no, relief, that only sugar could provide for me. My head on the pillow and my eyes closed again, I drifted off back to sleep. For a while, the soft lump continued pushing against the outside of my middle-aged baby teeth, transported by saliva towards a greedy stomach and thirsty blood. My body felt the bliss. The sugar buzzed in my brain and tingled in my toes. In the morning, my pillow would be stained pink from fructose-infused drool, and I would head downstairs for breakfast, asking politely, Mom, could I have a lump of brown sugar in my cornflakes, please? After all, asking for permission was the right thing to do. In middle school in Colorado, I ran a small business out of my locker between classes, selling those square Jolly Rancher lollipops, blue sharks, sour soothers, fuzzy peaches, nerds, and those colorful fruit-shaped plastic bottles with tiny screw tops containing nothing but sugar, dye, and artificial flavors like grape, banana, and lime. My markup wasn't more than 30%, but it provided enough cash flow that I could constantly get high on my own supply. The added benefit was that I felt like I was needed by other people, if only because they needed me to help them get their fix too. I equated this with respect. I hung out with the stoners and the rebels, but I wasn't remotely interested in smoking weed. I knew drugs were bad news. I was always curious, but I didn't want to become addicted. My parents would hate me for life, and I'd spend every summer in academic summer jail. No drugs for me. I'll just stick to the sugar. In high school, I'd wake up early and ride my bike instead of taking the bus. It would take me 10 minutes longer, but it also conveniently let me stop on the way at the 7-Eleven. What started out as a small Slurpee eventually escalated into a 52-ounce insulated extreme gulp mug, which basically replaced breakfast and lunch with sugary slush. By mid-afternoon, I could feel the crash coming. I usually had a few dollars from shoveling driveways or raking leaves, but in a pinch, I'd scrounge for coins from friends and floors, occasionally going through unlocked lockers, slouched with guilt. When I got even more bold, I would tell the administrative office at the school that the vending machine ate my money again and they'd replace my fantasy funds. Most days, I'd manage a vanilla Coke or some chewy sweet tarts, both if I was lucky, and that would hold me over until I got home. 
My parents generally encouraged healthy eating, had supplies for a wholesome, albeit boring, lunch, and cooked consciously to ensure their children were consuming the nutrients needed for growing bodies. I ate as little of that as possible and even less if I was stressed, usually skipping one or two meals a day while complaining endlessly of tight muscles, growing pains, toothaches. I was caught in a cycle of feeling ashamed to be me and reaching out for what made it bearable. Dentists would pull my parents aside and alert them that they only saw this kind of damage from cocaine addicts. My parents paid thousands of dollars for fillings and extractions and then hounded me to brush my teeth at least once a day. I felt guilty. Another vanilla Coke might help. My first girlfriend was familiar enough with the effects of addiction in her own family that she started encouraging me to wean myself off sugar. I replaced soda with flavored waters and tetra packs of pineapple juice under the guise that natural sugar would be healthier. Without it, I was constantly falling asleep in classes, irritable, angry. I was insecure and afraid of her love, but I thought she just wasn't trying hard enough. I remember crying in her car one day, asking her how she could possibly love a skinny half-brown kid with acne. She would respond with speechless tears of her own, unsure of how to convince me that she was choosing to be with me, that she loved me, that I meant something to her. Her big-hearted words and generous actions were never enough for me, and eventually she realized that this fight was best to stay out of. After nearly three years, she told me that we needed to break up, and I accepted her resignation peacefully. I had always believed I didn't deserve her love, and that I didn't have to give her what she really wanted, and so her choice to leave aligned perfectly with what I believed to be true. I honestly couldn't believe she'd stayed this long. I felt terrible about how I'd treated her almost immediately. Shortly after that, my cousin Darcy and I left to travel the world, just before we dug into university. Our trip started in Iceland, where everything was so expensive that we camped in the cold rain and ate tuna from the can with cheap, dry crackers. We splurged on one hot meal to celebrate my 19th birthday, a cheese pizza in a small town in eastern Iceland called Hofen. But we certainly couldn't afford candy. Each bag of candy would take one day off our trip by the time we got to India. For each of the 11 days we traveled in one of the most beautiful and curious countries on the planet, I grumbled, cried, bickered, and sulked. Darcy asked me rather patiently, are you going to be like this the whole trip? And I replied with a shrug, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. I hope not. I thought that maybe it was the incessant rain or that I wasn't adjusting to the continuous effort of backpacking. But I realized when we got to Spain that I had just gone through the first true sugar withdrawal in my life. When I came out the other side, my emotions had settled, I immediately felt more balanced, more present, more social, more connected, more energized than what I had even known was possible. And that was just the beginning. Flash forwarding to the present, Colorado Springs was settling into a warm, pink sunset. High on nothing but inspiration after my lunch with Mrs. Esmiel, I drove in silence to Devin's house, smiling, content, ready for whatever might come next. Devin was another couch surfing host, and he was the first person to respond to my new format of invitational message that offered guided reflection, wellness sessions, and intentional help relieving burdens. I provided examples of the massive range of services I might be able to contribute. I was open to abstract projects like confronting difficult thoughts or brainstorming solutions for pressing problems, or perhaps something more concrete and menial like house repairs or yard work. 
His response had been far more enthusiastic than most to meet me, and his vibes were contagious. So by the time I arrived at his house, I was highly optimistic that this would be a powerful encounter. He took two massive dark gray Cane Corso dogs that looked like they would eat me for dinner as they barked from the window to announce my approach. Oh, great. I groaned. Dogs. I don't mind dogs, really, but I can't stand the incessant chaos of barking, shedding, drooling, and chewing. But as I knocked on the door, I shook off that sense of bracing for discomfort. I wasn't here to be comfortable. Those old reactions and preferences, they no longer served me. I decided that I was going to fucking love those dogs. When Devin opened the door, the most enthusiastic greeting was not from the canines, but from Devin himself. Brother, come on in. A cool guy hand clasp with the pat on the back was followed with a mutual exchange of sincere smiles and eye contact, immediately giving me the sense that we were just best friends that hadn't met yet. Devin was black with a shaved head, trimmed beard, a round face topped with loosely placed trucker cap. His t-shirt showed off muscular tattooed arms. Come on in, brother. I hung my hat on a hook, dropped my bags near the couch, and followed him through his cozy living room with moody colored lighting, comfortable couches, curling incense, to his kitchen where he was already starting to cook something for dinner. Yo, I have been looking forward to meeting you all week, dog. I smiled at the warmest welcome I'd received in a long time. I couldn't remember a stranger being this excited to meet me. So here's the thing. He started the conversation as if we were picking up where we had left off. He spoke eloquently, but he kept his eyes focused on the spices and oil sizzling in the large black pot. I'm really going through an interesting period in life right now, he said. A few years ago, during my tour in Afghanistan, I started realizing that most of what the military had taught me about the world, about the people that lived there, it was all totally wrong. Those guys aren't the enemy, you know what I'm saying? His tone was gentle, thoughtful, passionate. His full self was present in every word. They were just other people fighting for their own safety, for their right to exist, trying to raise whole families. And we were over there killing them for it. Do you want some water? Oh, here's how this works. The first night, I got you, dog. You don't need to help or anything. I just want you to relax and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow, if I cook, you clean up. And if you cook, I'll clean up, okay? He adjusted the heat on the spices and onions and reached for a glass from the cupboard. Wow, okay, here we go, I thought. This guy was intense, and I loved it. I sat down at his rustic wooden table made with wrought iron and faded planks of gray wood and took a look around as the curious and attention-hungry dogs Nala and Remy leaned against my legs with wagging tails accepting my slow massages. His place was a mood, and everything was made of natural materials. The coffee table, the end tables, the TV stand were all made of rough cedar, walnut, and oak. Unpainted clay pots were clustered into corners filled with everything from tiny shoots to massive leafy behemoths. I counted 17 plants in total. A few fish lived in a tank on the breakfast bar. One goldfish almost certainly watched Devin fill the glass of water for me, motionless and looking directly at him. It was uncanny. Here you go, man, he says. I took a long drink of water, accidentally making eye contact with the goldfish that had moved to face me. Devin continued talking. So something in me shifted and I realized that we are all just humans on a planet, just with different customs and habits and traditions, but still all the same, really. 
worse. The army was basically trying to convince us that these guys are the enemy and that we shouldn't think about them as anything but a threat to America. I found myself thinking, what are we doing here? So pretty quickly after that, I got out and went traveling. First, Southeast Asia and then Europe. He chopped up some broccoli and other green vegetables, occasionally looking at me to emphasize the most important phrases in his story. Straight on eye contact. Thinly sliced vegetables slid off the cutting board into a pan. He seemed to do everything slowly and gently in the kitchen, in stark contrast to the intensity of the thoughts and how quickly he had opened up to me in the first place. When you sent me that couch surfing request, dog, I started reading your profile and I got so excited. Like, finally, here's someone who doesn't need the bullshit. So why would I want to waste our time? You know what I'm saying? He started smiling sideways at me, stirring what he steamed. Hell yeah, I said. I'm here for it. So how was traveling? It was wild, he said. Like everywhere you go, people are living differently. And a lot of the time, it's better than what we're doing here. I saw people showing each other real respect, not just tolerance or because I said so kind of respect. They genuinely think about the well-being of others, family, friends, even strangers. They'd host me and they'll give up their chair for me if there aren't enough. They serve each other. I just kept traveling because I didn't want to come home. Yeah, man, I said, whenever I travel, it's coming home that's always the biggest culture shock. Our version of normal here is so devastating. Word, he said. I love the way you put that. Devin paused for a second, looked at me with the fridge open, letting out all the cold air. You really get it, don't you? Man, I am so stoked you're here. He pulled out the carton of broth, closed the fridge, and went back to the stove. I just sat there wondering who this guy thought I was, wondering about his perception of me, what kind of life he thought I was living, what kind of skills he assumed that I had. None of that really mattered though. His passion to share was matched equally by enthusiasm to listen and respond, and everything he said resonated for me. Whenever I got a few words in, he'd pause, his eyes would go wide as if something in his mind would expand or connect. Word. He told me about how he's on a mission to explore who he is outside of the military, out of a marriage that ended but did not fail. Now he's taking space from his family, most of whom he had never left the East Coast. He's finding out who he is on his own. After coming back to the U.S. from traveling, he'd moved to Colorado with Nola and Remy intentionally because he didn't know anyone, because he wanted to reconnect with nature, because nature was helping him with the post-traumatic stress from the war. Jersey just had too many memories, he said. It's too many people who know the old me, and whenever they call, they act like I'm still that same old Devin. I'm not. That me is gone, and the new me says it how it is. I'm trying to leave that drama and ego behind. I'm ready for peace. I'm ready for whatever's next. He pulled some perfectly cooked steak strips out of the oven where they'd been keeping warm, placed them on the counter, and then mixed the vegetables into the broth. I could tell he loved to cook. Love was in the details. Only an hour after I had arrived, we sat down at the table and ate his homemade ramen. Each ingredient had been slowly honed into an essential element of texture, an indispensable gustatory note in a culinary orchestra. Damn. So tell me your story, man, he said. What's this all about for you? I wasn't sure I could match his intensity. I recognized, though, that this wasn't a competition so much as an opportunity to rise higher for myself. Oh, let's see, I sighed, forever still aware of how ambiguous this story still felt. I'm on a mission of figuring that out as I go. 
I got rid of most of what I owned. I said goodbye to everyone in Canada and I'm traveling the country looking for people I can learn from and ways in which I can contribute. I'm a writer now, I guess, and I'm exploring concepts like self-awareness, personal growth, and learning how to have hard conversations well. But really, I still have no idea what that means. I'm just taking it day by day, showing up to whoever I can, seeing what I can give that they seem to need. He was almost overwhelmed by my words. He told me the world needs more places to have difficult conversations. He told me he was looking for people like that to connect with, but that it's hard to find people willing to go there. I thought back to how Josh and Boulder had just said the exact same thing, how Tristan had unconsciously met his need for connection by opening up to me about his childhood. We all crave depth. Per his instructions, I wasn't supposed to, but I did the dishes while he made the living room into it almost a movie set, a stadium for the home game, a concrete environment to ground us so that we could get lost in each other's abstract perspectives. It was already clear that this would be powerful conversation. I was surprised he had turned on the TV until I realized that it was only to feature the fireplace channel. He dropped a few drips of essential oil into a little bowl on the coffee table and placed a tea light candle above it to warm the fragrance and release it into the air. He lit two sticks of incense and stuck them upright in a bowl of crystals and rocks. And then we got into it. He'd bring up a question or an idea, share his take on it, and then turn his attention to my own perspective. Occasionally, I'd get into a flow state where the words just poured out of me in luxurious eloquence, usually talking about how we need to rest into the ambiguity and play with our uncertainty, rather than just fix the problem or make a concrete plan. Or I'd talk about how we were the last ones that seem to notice our own strengths, and that it's our support systems that help us discover what they see in us that we are missing still for ourselves. Wherever our minds wandered, I listened intently and shared expansively. One time I had finished speaking, he shook his head slowly and closed his eyes with a massive grin. Dog, that is so good. I can see your confidence still ebbs and flows though, you know? Like one minute you're spitting straight fire with your word choice, your ideas, and the next you aren't even sure what to do with yourself. You just gotta keep putting it out there, man. It fucking matters, you know? You don't see it yet, but maybe you're already doing it. You already have the skills. You're already making the difference to people around you. You found what comes next for you. It just takes time to settle into it. I felt chills as he spoke, frequently. At first it would seem that he was rambling, but then I saw how he was just throwing a few ingredients into the pot, one at a time, before he started stirring them all together. He would spend 20 minutes explaining the exact dynamic of a relationship that he had with his quasi-gangster father, giving so much backstory, nuance, and details about the dynamic, weaving in examples, and also explaining the limits of each trait or idea so that I wouldn't overgeneralize it in my mind. He brought his mother's personality to life for me, shaping her in my mind before contrasting it with her toxic communication styles and laying on the deep-seated insecurities of her own past, and then zooming way back out to show how this parenting dynamic had left him exhausted, resentful, and earnestly loyal. Every idea Devin described was like shaping another facet of a diamond until I could hold it up between my finger and thumb and marvel at the eloquence and perfection that he had crafted in front of me. I'd once seen glassblowers on the island of Murano, near Venice, how in mere moments they could poke, prod, and shape an amorphous blob of liquid glass into a magnificent blue-tinged stallion on its back legs. Devin's spoken word was so visceral, each image he crafted in my mind was striking art. 
For my part, I had to focus intently because he danced around the concept, crafting it slowly. His explanations were non-linear, long-winded, and convoluted. I could stop to ask questions, but I rarely did, because I just wanted to see him work it through, from thoughts to words to images to full-blown realities that were so incomprehensibly different from mine, and yet always so brilliantly compatible. Engaging with Devin's mind expanded my own. One thing I've gotten really good at, and I'm not trying to brag, Devin was always reminding me that he's no better than anyone else. But one thing I'm good at is understanding how important it is to engage with your five senses in everything that you do. Cooking, for example. I move slow because I'm constantly checking in with what my eyes are seeing, how the food looks, how it smells, the sounds of it. I'm tasting it and I'm thinking about the texture of it. Look at the way I set up the room, the oils, the incense, the lighting, the fireplace channel. When we engage with our senses, we become grounded in our bodies, and that creates safety to explore emotionally. I was suddenly a little choked up. Devin, this is so huge, man. I just realized as you were talking that I feel really relaxed here. I feel safe. I feel engaged. Sitting here feels the closest to home I've felt in weeks. Thank you. I'm going to think about the five senses a lot more often. Word, hell yeah, brother. That's what I'm talking about. Let's feel good. You are safe. I'm just so excited you're here, dog. I hadn't smoked weed since before I'd had COVID, but I asked Devin if he'd like to now. He didn't smoke often either, but we both recognized that cannabis would unlock an infinite number of perspectives and dimensions as our brains collaborated on ideas around relationships, motivation, insecurities, purpose, death, boundaries. He told me of some of the horrors and beauty he'd seen in Afghanistan, about his upbringing in a family built around drugs, lies, and prison. At any given moment, I was completely enraptured with his eloquence or passionately expounding some idea or truth that I could see in his experience. He asked me difficult questions about my own insecurities, my own limiting beliefs, my own unmet needs. Our minds were alive and our bodies were at peace. Earlier that afternoon, I'd spent nearly four hours talking with Mrs. Esmiel before driving straight here to Devon's. From the moment he'd opened the door, our words had been continuous. We smoked a joint, listened to music, and explored each other's perspectives until sometime after two in the morning. After 14 hours of intense mental and emotional processing, I told him I'd reached my limit. I was energized and exhausted, just like the physical feeling after a satisfying and grueling workout. He took his dogs to his room and left me on the couch to fall asleep. I was deeply fulfilled by the conversation, inspired by his eloquence and depth, and grateful for the dynamic we had co-created. We both found we could contribute as much as we could receive from each other. I spent two days at his place before doing laundry, packing my things, and returning to the foster home for a few more days. Bro, if you're in town again next week, maybe we can hang out. I'll give you a call in a couple days, okay? Sounds good, man, I said. I'd love that. A couple weeks went by, and I didn't hear from him. I didn't really hear from anyone. It was a quiet time, and a few days leading up to Christmas. I wasn't having any luck finding couch surfing hosts. Ah, man, they'd say, I'd love to meet up, but I'm out of town for the holidays. Maybe when I'm back in the new year? I decided I needed to move on from the dynamic of the foster home. It was starting to drain my energy. I was starting to walk on eggshells, too. I wanted some solitude, and I chose to embrace the peace by treating myself, using a travel voucher, and get a hotel for a few days. It finally felt like a well-earned break from the chaos of the couches and the relentless conversations. I nearly cried as I walked into the hotel room at the Antlers Hotel. 
a Christmas gift to myself, the view of downtown Colorado Springs, illuminated but empty buildings, blended a sense of coziness and stark isolation. I grinned at the silence, the warmth, and the opulence of my situation. I decided to go buy a bottle of wine. I seemed a little bit more willing to treat myself when I felt optimistic about the future. I put on my shoes, walked towards the door, and just when I was about to open it, someone knocked. Hello, sir. A man in a poorly fitted black suit offered a cordial smile. Your wine, sir? Uh, I didn't order any wine. You must have the wrong room. No, sir. This is your wine. He was emotionless, bored even. All right, cool. I'll take it. It must be a Christmas Eve gesture from the hotel. More than that, it was wildly perfect timing. I popped the bottle, poured a glass, stared at the skyline, and took a moment to reflect. It's Christmas Eve, I thought. How would I like to spend it? How do I make the most of this evening? As much as I craved the idea of turning on the TV, drinking wine, and not talking to anyone, I knew I could do better. I had a little more to give tonight. I decided that this Christmas, I would wander to nearby bars and see who could use a little community. At the hotel lobby bar, I asked the two ladies sitting beside me, who happened to also be lesbian Texans on the road searching for safer communities to live in, whether they had received a bottle of wine from the hotel as well. They had not, and I momentarily felt special at the expense of their envy. Before my drink was finished, I decided that this place wasn't where I was going to spend my evening. The conversations around me seemed stunted when it approached anything beyond reality TV. I moved on to an arcade bar that was busier than expected. The blonde bartender was talking with her friend who was sitting beside me about a mutual friend who was a downer because she was always complaining but never changing anything about her life. They somehow organically merged me into their conversation until I asked them, in good humor, if they're usually complaining about this girl without elevating who deserves their attention. And the room suddenly got a little colder. Within a few minutes, a man in his late 40s shuffled in and sat beside me. Generic buzz cut, gray hoodie, expressionless face. He ordered a beer and I clinked his glass when it arrived. Merry Christmas, my man. He smiled and cheers back. Hey, you too. So, why are you alone at a bar on Christmas Eve? I wasn't pulling any punches here. Are we getting into it or not? Ah, okay. I could see him recalibrating his perception of me and the intensity of the conversation that I was inviting him into. Well, the kids are with the grandparents, their mom's parents, and I'm starting a new job tomorrow, so I just figured I'd get out of the house for a few hours and this is where I come. Congrats on the job, I said. I raised my beer again and took a sip in celebration. How old are your kids? 10 and 11, a boy and a girl. So the kids still get to have their family Christmas at least. It's their mom's parents' house, hey? What's the dynamic like? If you chose to show up tonight, would you be welcome? He looked directly into my eyes and turned his body slight towards me. Always a good sign. Well, yeah, I'm sure that that would be fine. It's complicated, though. They've been a big part of the kids' lives. I'm just trying to get my own life sorted so that I can be a good dad for them. That's good to hear, I said. Do you think the kids know that? Or do they think you're skipping out on Christmas for a reason that they don't agree with or understand? Well, hmm, I'm not sure what they think, but I need this job. They are probably happier to be with their grandparents anyways. I think they understand. Where's mom? Yeah, he stared down at his beer knowing this question was coming eventually. So that's the thing. She died, and I'm just trying to work through that. I guess we all are. 
Ah, okay. I nodded. I tend to minimize the, oh geez, that's too bad kind of responses. It never really lands and it unnecessarily fastens my own perception to his reality. My goal is to understand his perspective and his emotional experience. I'm merging into his lane. Where do you feel like you're at with working through it all? Is it still fresh? Well, I don't know where I'm at, honestly. She died five years ago. It was a drug overdose. I didn't even know she was doing drugs until the drugs killed her. So I'm angry. I feel betrayed. It's intensely isolating for me. I love her to pieces and I miss her every day. But yeah, I'm still pretty fucking raw about it. Even though it's been five years. I mean, I'll always be angry. That's just my burden to carry in life now. So I don't know where I'm at, but it is what it is. I nodded. Yeah. It is good to remember that the anger isn't necessarily conflicting with the love. We get to experience both at the same time. It's not necessarily a tug of war. Yeah, that's true, he said. I just try to focus on being a good dad, pick up the slack, fill in the gap that she's left. Make sure the kids are okay, and that's about all I can do. And how are they doing? How do you know if they're going to be okay? Well, I think they're okay, he said. They don't ask many questions anymore. We don't talk about it much. So I think they're moving on better than I am. Oh, I doubt they're moving on much at all. I was a little more blunt than I intended. I mean, I know I haven't met you and I don't know you and I haven't met them, but hear me out and let me know what resonates or what I'm missing, okay? He raised his eyebrows and waited for me to continue, perhaps ready to argue, perhaps just bracing for something he didn't want to hear. Sure. Oh, I took a deep breath, fully aware that I'd picked something open that I had no business forming opinions about. Okay, your kids, they went through something really brutal, right? And it hurt them and they're confused. And it's one thing to support them in life and ensure that their needs are met and offer a stable place to live. And I get that. It's a totally different set of skills to help somebody work through grief and confront loss. I'm not saying that I have those skills, but if as a family, you're not talking about this, if dad doesn't know what the kids think of being separated from dad over Christmas, or if dad doesn't know where dad is at with processing mom's death after five years, then I'm not sure where they would be learning those skills from or how they would process their own emotions. If dad is stuck, then they'll learn how to be stuck. Do you know what I mean? His shoulders tightened a bit. He was a little hunched over, brows furrowed, eyes narrowed and darting left to right. But mostly, he still looked straight ahead. I tried to articulate the key takeaway and simplify the tangle of emotions and thoughts tying knots in his body and mind. It's not fair, I know, that they are going to look to you for how to respond to pain. And if it takes you your whole life to find peace around that, do you really think I can find peace here? No, man, I can't just move on and be okay. Okay, maybe peace isn't the right word. But I do think there's a place you can get to where you're not angry. You can miss her forever, but you don't have to carry the burden of resentment around until you die. You don't have to get there today, and maybe you never will. But I just want you to entertain the idea for a moment that it could be possible. If you think that it is possible for the kids to get there, then you need to believe that it's possible for you to get there too. Plus, they're going to look to you for that leadership, for how to move through the healing process. You want to be a good dad, and I applaud that. Part of being a good dad is digging into what hurts and processing that as a family. 
yeah, we're definitely not processing this as a family right now. Hmm. Maybe I could do a better job of keeping this on the table for discussion with them. It's just hard to bring up, you know? I mean, how do you bring up the fact that their mom is dead, really? Where do you start? When's her birthday? May 26th? Why? How do you celebrate it? I don't know. We just have dinner. So you don't really talk about her? Not even on her birthday? Actually, no, not really. His eyes were now a little wider. His eyebrows above them arched as he flipped through five previous years of muted dinners together as a family. So what if on her birthday, you dedicated that day to talking about mom, talking about addiction? I got choked up. Talking about depression. Unpacking where you're each at, what questions your kids have, what bothers them still. Maybe the day could be dedicated to sharing stories about mom, to supporting each other, a rededication to being there for each other. Maybe your family could become so open with each other in a way that mom wasn't able to be. And her birthday celebrates a commitment to helping each other learn those skills. I wiped a couple tears out of my eye as he nodded. You know, he said, I really like that idea. May 26th, I smiled. That sounds like the kind of fucking birthday party I want to be at. Man, wow. Yeah. He nodded with the biggest smile. That's what we're going to do. It'll be a day about mom. Hell yeah, I said. We both stood up, gave each other a big hug. All right, he said. I got to take off, but before I go, can I buy you a beer? He pointed to my empty glass. I'd appreciate that. Thank you. He threw a few bills on the counter, shook my hand once more, and said goodnight. Have a good Christmas, I smiled. Just as my phone rang, it was nearly midnight. Who was calling me? Hey, Paige, how you doing? I loved hearing from Matt and Paige. Their spontaneous phone calls were always invigorating. Did you get it? She said. Get what? Seriously? The front desk at your hotel is useless. What are you talking about? The wine, she said. Did you get the wine? It was supposed to be delivered by now. I immediately laughed and cried at the same time. Earlier that morning, I'd mentioned to them the hotel that I'd be staying at, and they'd paid for a bottle of wine to be delivered and asked for a note to be left with the bottle. I hadn't even checked the backside of the card with the hotel's logo on it. Paige stoked with a lightness and radiant generosity, completely glazing over the fact that actually today was her birthday. We just wanted to know that we're thinking of you, we love you, we miss you. Matt chimed in from the background. A bunch of us were at dinner tonight, and we were talking about how proud we are of you, and how much we support you and admire what you're doing. Thanks, guys. I wiped tears from my eyes and let out a big sigh. I headed out into the cold street, at peace, firmly inside my body, feeling the whole world through my five senses. The streets listened patiently to my slow footsteps as I traced the path back to the hotel. The string lights hung from invisible branches, an electric display for an audience of one. The A at the top of the Antlers Hotel was burnt out, almost as if it was winking at me somehow, and I winked back. I let out a soft grin of contented delight, evidence of a deep certainty. Tonight, in the early hours of Christmas morning, alone in a dark city, I was right where I needed to be, doing exactly what I needed to do. On a night that could have put frost in my bones, I was warmed by my experiences with these incandescent and neon lights in various states of repair, with a grieving husband and father, with my generous friends. 
I stopped to scribble a few notes in my leather-bound black journal and tucked it under my arm, watching my breath trail away, and I reminded myself once more that this was just the beginning. 